You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. I'm really happy that we're going to focus on the European hedgehog because they are darling. And I just love that they're native to the UK. I think that's super cool. What can they teach us? So long term, you know, when, when eventually we, we start discovering the cosmos, something like hibernation. You know, you see it in movies, hibernating people and pods and stuff. Will that be possible once we figure out all of these? Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. All right. So, laying this one out today. Very cute, super adorable hedgehogs. But in New Zealand, they're like the hedgehogs from hell. But elsewhere in the world, they are awesome, gorgeous, beautiful, little charismatic. They're, it's like you just want to cuddle with them. With a, well, with a pair of gloves yeah. on. Yes, leave them alone. <laughs> leave them alone. But hedgehogs. Well, no, at the zoo, I actually worked with them when I was in the education department. And you do want to handle them with gloves on because they have those mm-hmm. quills. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. yeah, you don't want to get poked. But they are they are darling and very, very charismatic and well-loved and a fun species. Oh, my goodness. Their physiology is super cool. We're going to talk about some unique behaviors that they do. One's called self-anointing. Mm-hmm. And, Chris, I was just blown away by the fact that there's 17 species of hedgehogs. I know. I'm like, oh, we'll do hedgehog. And it's like, okay, which one? Which one do we pick? <laughs> it's, there's yes. tough. So I think I, I focus more on the Western European because they are facing some some challenges, especially in the UK. So I know we wanted to do a shout out for our European listeners, and that's why we went and, and picked Hedgehog, even though they're in Africa, Asia, and down here in New Zealand. Yeah, I just had no idea there were 17 species. And it was funny, uh, on the way home from the horse farm, just before we started recording, uh, John and I were talking, and I, and I asked my husband how many species he thought there was, mm-hmm. and he said like three and yeah. I'm like, no, higher. And he's like, four? Higher. And anyways, he had no idea either. We were both yeah, blown away. Yeah. And uh, But I'm I'm really happy that we're going to focus on the European hedgehog because they are darling. And I just love that they're native to the UK. I think that's super cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's really where, where they are, their populations are rapidly decreasing. So uh, that's why I wanted to focus in on it and, you know, and, and, and 
when I was there in the UK a few years ago and, and seen some of the challenges faced by the wildlife there. So it will be an interesting conversation when we get there. And when I say the hedgehogs from hell, I mean, they're, they're super adorable, but they you were mean in New Zealand. Yeah, they were introduced to New Zealand, unfortunately, and they have just been devastating, devastating to the wildlife here. Uh, like, you know, some of the other species we we have uh, introduced here that don't belong here. And so we'll tell a little bit about that story. I mean, we've talked a lot about New Zealand and some of the challenges the islands have faced with invasive species. But overall, the hedgehog is a feel-good story because mm-hmm. of the 17 species, they're all least concerned, mm-hmm. except for in the UK because their population is declining there. And even looking at the Western European hedgehog they're really cosmopolitan type species. It's really distributed throughout Europe. Uh, They do well in natural areas, but also in suburban areas for the most part. So I know researchers are trying to figure out why they're declining so much in the UK. Yeah, they are. are. I mean, they call them the the gardener's friend. I mean, they they do go in and and get out insects and stuff. And and we'll talk about that when we get to to what they feed on. Uh, But real quick, thank you, Adele. Adele is from Estonia and sent us an amazing email. She joined us on Patreon. She had a special request, which I think we need to get back to to mustelids. Absolutely. The Eurasian mink. Yeah, that would be fun. That would be a fun one. I've kind of had the mink on my radar, so I think we'll we'll focus in on that uh, for her because uh, I think they they would be an amazing story. And we got to talk about mustelids, right? We just love them. So So fun. Yeah. So thank you, Adele. Thank you to our Patreon uh, subscribers. Again, uh, Angie and I are are getting back on track. Uh, We both were were sick. Uh, I had bad cold uh, slash maybe COVID and so did Angie. So uh, we're getting back on with our monthly lives uh, to touch base with you. So Adele and all the others, feel free to hop on and talk to us and give us recommendations and we can feed, you know, give you more information on where we're taking the podcast. We have some massive interviews up and coming uh, that I think you're both, that I think everybody's going to enjoy. So stay tuned for that. But thank you so much for the support and the animals and the the uh, conservation organizations we're supporting. Thank you too. Well, and I just love that Adele was from Estonia. Yeah. And so it just goes to show how this community that we're building is really global and international. And I just, it just made me smile uh, from ear to ear knowing that we have listeners and fellow animal lovers and conservationists uh, over in Estonia and across the world. So thank Mm -hmm. you, Adele. I know. I love seeing those those downloads from Europe and and Asia and and South America and Africa and our buddies over here in Australia and New Zealand. So thank you wherever you live for listening. You know, just we we, we appreciate it. And uh, this is what drives us to do this. Switching gears, Ange, describing this cute... So adorable, little, little hellacious hedgehog. I don't want to call them that. I, I'm not going to call them that, you know, anymore. But they are so adorable. Like, wow, you know. Yeah, Chris, I think the hedgehog kind of describes itself, right? Everybody is familiar with this small, round animal with short legs, that, uh, depending on the species. But in the Western European hedgehog, they're about one inch above the ground. And of course, they are very well known for those quills, uh, which cover most of their body, except for their cheeks, throat, stomach, and limbs. And we'll talk more about the physiology of the hedgehog's a spine or quill. Uh, but in general, especially in the European hedgehog, the quills have white tips and the bases are covered with alternating black and brown bands. 
And where they're not covered in quills or spines, the, the fur is going to be a yellow to light brown, uh, medium brown in color. And Chris, what does it for me is their face. It's just so cute. Uh, they have a conical shaped head that's a little bit elongated, um, not much of a neck, so a short neck, and this darling snout uh, that sticks out and ends in a beautiful black nose. I, I love animal noses. for some, oh, They're just some mm -hmm, of my favorite parts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they have a perfect nose, if you ask me, and then little black eyes and then rounded ears, too, uh, that are sometimes hidden by the spikes, depending on how, how you're looking at them. So they're just darling. I mean, they're often shown in on the internet like curled up in balls mm -hmm. or partially in balls. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about that physiology uh, uh, a little bit later on. But yeah, they've got cute little feet that are, of course, not covered in uh, the spines. And uh, yeah. yeah. I forgot They're to down. mention, I, I did see one outside work uh, a couple weeks back. And oh, you did? Why, yeah, I did. Out, out in one of the paddocks or the pastures. And and I was like, oh, I'm like, Angie, we got to put these guys on the list. So I think that's what spurred this one. I, and they're just... They are so adorable, but they're yeah. small. They you know, are. They, yeah. yeah. When I worked with them at the zoo, they're very small and uh, and they're just they're they're shy. Mm -hmm. uh, they keep to themselves for the most part, uh, but they're just darling. I mean, are, especially I love I, at the zoo. I would love watching them eat their little insects, and yeah, I could watch them all day. Yeah, I mean these are these are amazing creatures that need protection. They absolutely need protection. You know wherever they are, and, and talking even with about, even with those quills. Yeah, <laughs> even with them. But I mean, as small as five inches, some of the species mm -hmm. up to twelve inches long. You know, which is a little bit bigger animal. Small little stubby tails, one to two inches or five centimeters. They weigh up to fifty ounces or one and a half kilograms. You know, up to that. Most aren't. So they are you know, a small little insectivore, omnivore, but mainly insects. And these 17 species span across the globe. You know, the European, Western European hedgehog, you would assume, yes, Western Europe, so Spain, France, up into Germany, down into Italy, and then obviously the UK. And then the Northern White that's where you get some in like Finland and Norway and that region and spanning all across Europe, you know, all the way through Asia over into China and Korea, where you have the Emir hedgehog, mm -hmm. which God, the Emir leopard's the one I, I would like to cover at some point. You know, they're critically endangered. Um, you know, the, just there's some amazing creatures in that part of the, the region. Then you go down into Southwest Asia or the Middle East and you have the desert hedgehog, which is so adorable. Like all of these species are just, just precious. And, and then you have the Somali hedgehog, again, gorgeous little creature spanning North Africa, you know, Central Africa, and then down into South Africa, you know, you have the Southern African hedgehog. So, so they're everywhere. And then the Western Europeans are the ones that are here in New Zealand. So just oh just the desert the desert hedgehog has really big ears. I just it googled does, it. Is it cute? It's so it's cute. So, oh my god! It is, yeah, this it one's is. ears really show uh, much yeah. much more so than the the European. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're really cute. Now the European hedgehog. Some of the uh, we're going to find them is in fields, field edges, hedgerows. Uh, they don't really like thickly wooded areas. They're more in the scrub brush or drier areas. Um, warmer sand dunes, that types of things. 
Um, but like Angie said, they, they are like kind of urban areas finding their little niches, home gardens, you know, and parks, places around there. So you're finding them kind of, kind of all over, aren't you? Well, Chris, right before we started recording, uh, I was looking at the British Hedgehog Preservation Society. It's a group that I'll be highlighting at the end of the podcast uh, because they do really good work to try to preserve the uh, the hedgehog in the UK. And anyways, there was a video posted about a poor little hedgehog spotted in Wembley uh, mm-hmm. earlier in August. And so it's it's trying to get some litter or garbage or something. Mm. And I think the person taking the video like rescued it, but still that's a very, very urban area. And it's just a reminder too, of why we should put our rubbish or our litter uh, in the proper spots so that wildlife doesn't encroach on these busy streets and, uh, and where all the humans are. No, definitely. And I think that's a good segue into, to, to why care? Why, why give, give, give a hoot about hedgehogs outside New Zealand? <laughs> because like I'm saying, they're insectivores, omnivores, but mainly insectivores. I mean, they, ah, when you start thinking about all these species and how important they are and how they've carved out these niches and they, everything's in balance, right? Like everything's in balance. Absolutely, Chris. And hedgehogs really are gardeners' friends. Uh, and I mean, not only do they eat some of the berries or fruit, but they, they'll they go after the pests in your backyard. Mm-hmm. Beetles, caterpillars. Oh my goodness, caterpillars always destroy all my tomato plants. <laughs> yeah. And we don't have hedgehogs here in North America. So. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, but at any rate, they, they really are an important part of keeping uh, insect populations under control. And just being a, a nice middle creature in the food web, right? Mm-hmm. In one article I was reading, they were saying that hedgehogs uh, can be bioindicators too of the health of the ecosystem that they are living in. So, just just really really important and so darn cute, right? I yeah, mean, yeah. I mean, just an, an important in a lot of cultural aspects as well. Uh, of course, here in North America, we have uh, Sonic the hedgehog from a video game. But culturally speaking, hedgehogs hold a really big place in European, African folklore, and things like this. So they obviously do hold um, a special place in a lot of people in a lot of countries' hearts. Well, they had Except for New Zealand. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Well, that's what I'm going to talk about next briefly. But Sonic the Hedgehog, you know, the movie came out a couple, there's two movies and my boys maybe watch it. It's cute. Yeah, it's a cute little family fun fun thing so uh you can, you can watch them in there too but down here in new zealand so this goes back to the interview i, I had a, a few episode 280 with uh thomas realstone who's the uh, history of Aotearoa new zealand podcast and uh, you know talking a lot about the invasive species and and i did i think i did post on social media maybe on, on our instagram account that hedgehog and Thomas wrote me privately. He's like, Chris, you have no idea how bad they are. And I said, I, I know they're bad, but it's still cute. It's right there outside my office. And I'm watching this thing root around for some grubs, but they are, I mean, they were brought to New Zealand, like a lot of these invasive species because it, it reminded settlers of their homeland, right back from the UK. Oh, interesting. So, so they are purposely brought. Yes. Yes. Yeah, okay. Oh, purposely. Yeah. They didn't like, like they brought, hitch a ride. Or no, anything. no, God, no. Most of our species, <laughs> Uh, you can find out more about that in Thomas's interview. He talks about it. It's very fascinating that, you know, with the the Maori when they came, you know, you had these Polynesian rats that hitched a ride. It wasn't like 
they meant to. I think they brought some dog Polynesian dogs with them, if, if I remember right. But uh, definitely the Polynesian rats hitched a ride uh, on the wakas that they came over on. But when the Europeans came, they're like, oh, we want to make this more like the UK. And so they brought in all these invasive birds and animals, stoats, weasels. They brought in stoats and weasels to control some of the population. Like they brought in rabbits and Australia went through the same similar things. And hedgehogs were one of them. It was like, oh, we'll we'll help them control some of the, the, the insects. Well, there are no natural predators here. There's no native predators that eat hedgehogs. And, you know, we don't have fox and all these other things that will eat them. So they kind of went out of control and they're just going out on this feeding binge on all our native wildlife, particularly our native insects, frogs, shorebirds that nest on the ground or nest ground nesting birds, the hedgehogs will go after. So one quote uh, is Dr. Nick Foster. He uh, finished his PhD at the University of Otago. And he's just saying like, it, it's, it's crazy how much damage hedgehogs are doing that we're really not seeing. He said a single dedicated hedgehog will consume numerous native lizards, birds, eggs, and weta, which weta is like, it's very unique insect here to New Zealand. It's a flightless cricket. It's, it's a big deal over here. They're massive. But he said one study found 283 weta legs in a single hedgehog stomach. So that hedgehog in 24 hours said just basically was guzzling up animals left and right. So they're not exactly uh, friendly here. We are trying to eradicate them. It is controversial a little bit with some of our eradication programs in New Zealand, but by 2050, I think we were trying to get rid of most of the the mammals. I don't know if hedgehogs are in that list or not, but like our our rats, which are now the, I think the Norway rat or European rats are the, the big problem and stoats, weasels, uh, things like that. All right. So we know hedgehogs don't belong here in New Zealand, right? That's not what we're really talking about. I mean, they belong everywhere else in the world and, and they do a spectacular job. The rabbit hole this led me down was the decline of insects and around the world. And I've been seeing this pop up in my news feed for the last few months. And I thought this would be a good time to introduce this topic that I will, you know, depending on the species, I'll expand upon. Uh, what we're seeing, what scientists are reporting around the world. Now, Angie and I, obviously, we cover a lot of other species. We rarely cover invertebrates. I don't ever see us. We might, we might maybe do like a butterfly or the, the bee or something. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe. Chris, it's so funny. I just had this conversation this morning with my mm. best friend, Nani. She was like, well, are you guys going to do insects ever? And I'm like, oh, oh, honey, no. I mean... <laughs> I'm like, maybe get some experts on here. And I yeah. would like to because the, wow, some of the superpowers and physiology mm. of insects are just mind blowing. But, oh, I don't know. It would have to be my full-time job to research it yeah. that week in order to, to talk about them because I would have to and be like, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, to do them justice. There's a lot to them and, and we don't want to do a disservice to them. But, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. But they are critical. They're they're massive, important uh, of our food webs. They they the, from top down they do so much, so much. So there is a growing alarm in scientific communities, especially in uh, people that study this, 
native insect populations are declining, especially in certain species. For example, monarch butterflies in North America, the mass migration. That's something I would love to talk about, hopefully with a researcher or something, how they are in Mexico, they migrate up to Canada and then come back down to Mexico. But it's like five life cycles. It's not the same butterfly. It's like it goes, flies, lays its eggs, dies. The next generation flies north, lays its egg, dies. I I don't remember all of it. They spend some time in Canada, then start flying south, die, lay eggs. Those ones hatch, die, and then the the next generation makes it to Mexico. Something like that. I'm not doing it justice, but... there's a huge point proven, right? Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But the other one was bumblebees. I'm going to talk about here in a second, this very interesting story with bumblebees that are going on around the planet. And for the, the hedgehog bats, birds that we talk about, insects are critical, are critical, you know, for food, uh, insects help uh, keep soils healthy. They pollinate, you know, three quarters of the crops that we grow around the planet are pollinated by insects, you know, a lot of bees, but other insects too. So if we don't have insects, we go extinct. No problem. No problem. As well as probably most of the species on earth, except down there in the ocean depths, those are the ones always survive mass extinctions. So we're not saying all insects are going to go extinct, but many of these, uh, species are threatened with extinction. So things like habitat loss, industrialization, global farming, the massive use of pesticides, uh, invasive species uh, like, you know, hedgehogs here in New Zealand, light pollution. There's so many things that are impacting them. And so what they're finding is native insects are finding these like little habitats or islands where they can live and survive. But outside of that, they're dying. You know, they're not able to survive, so they're getting fragmented. Now, to explain this, you know, like climate change is having a massive impact. And I I mentioned bumblebees because we do know the climate does change around the planet. We we know that it it, it does happen in natural cycles. The last ice age, uh, we saw mammoths go extinct, saber-toothed cats, blah, 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 right? And I'm going to bring this home, Angie, I promise you. <laughs> but I want to tell this story about the bumblebee. So when that happens, okay, say so bumblebees who are kind of cold living, right? When the earth gets really, really cold, bumblebees will migrate south as well as all the plants and things that they feed on and pollinate. They migrate more towards the equator. And then as the earth warms, like the last ice age going away, bumblebees and all those plants took hundreds, if not a couple thousand years to migrate back up into that climate where they thrive. Well, what they're finding with bumblebees, especially the European bumblebee, is its southern range is too hot for them. So they're no longer surviving or living down there. But because climate change is is changing so rapidly, these plants that take quite a long time to migrate can't right? So it's food resources aren't migrating north. So they're not finding bumblebees migrating north at all, but they're losing their southern range. So scientists are calling this shrinking range a climate vice, where it's squishing them, where, you know, they're, they're, they're really, really worried uh, about like the bumblebee and other insects like that. So 
I just wanted to start that conversation in the podcast. Uh, I'll cover more in the future, especially when we cover an insectivore. Yeah, and it might be worth looking for an expert. Mm-hmm. It's really, it's an interesting and important topic. Yeah, yeah. Like as, you know, I mean, it, it's every living species on Earth right now is going through a lot of stress, environmental stress from plants, microbes. I mean, we're finding microbes going extinct. Like it's, there's a lot going on. And so we need to unpack it and we need to understand it and we need to make changes. And I think Angie, just to wrap this up and give some good news, I really feel like there's a, a, a change going on around the planet. I know everybody's stressed living in 2022. I know there's a lot going on with, we're still in this pandemic somewhat, uh, the economy is up on its head no matter where you live. But I'm reading things like California, my old home state, by was I think 2030, no more gas cars can be sold. That's in eight years, you know, and I think New Zealand, like by 2040 or something, like no gas cars at all. Everything's going to be electric. I'm starting to see that more and more pop up. I feel like there's there's a push, there's a need, there's an urgency and governments are responding. Yeah, Chris, I agree. We just have to keep up the good fight. And there is a lot of positive change on the horizon. That's for sure. Yeah, it was, it was California is going to ban uh, petrol driving cars by 2035. New Zealand is proposed to do it by 2040. And I guarantee you, I, I know there's countries in Europe that are already doing this. Oh, yeah. And there was a bit, there's a big push in the United States um, for uh, ta- uh, tax credits and stuff like that if you um, buy electric. So. Yeah, so we're definitely seeing seeing the change there, which is really, really good. Really, really good. Okay, hedgehog evolution. These are ancient. I'll tell you that. They're one of the most ancient mammals. I know we've covered some of those recently, uh, but hedgehogs are definitely one of them. So just to get through their classification, the order is Eulipodifia. So this is the shrews, moles, hedgehogs. I was hard pressed to think if we've covered anybody in this order. There was one that was pretty Uh-oh, fa- quiz time. Fanatical, crazy nose, I'm nearly blind. Ah, Northeast. the star nosed mole. Yeah, episode 140. That was a fun one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a long time ago. 140 episodes ago. Oh, very, but their very... phil- the physiology of yes. their, their star nose was yeah. incredible. I remember that, obviously not off the top of my head, but the uh, their, the neurons and the, the mm-hmm. amount that they had in, uh, in their nose. Yeah, wow. Yeah, nearly blind. That. But yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're up there in, in Canada, right? Northeast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Northeast North America. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was a fun one. So we haven't covered many in a, in a while, but 450 species in there that we can. And then the family is Arnisidae. So, oh, really quick, are Tinrex in there? Hmm. We used to him at the zoo. That's the only reason why I know him. All right, and you know, you, you stumped me there. Okay, so I had to Google it. Uh, we had to pause real quick. So they're from the order Afrosoracida. This is the golden moles of Southern Africa. But they look just like hedgehogs. They're very they similar, do. right? They do. At least in my untrained eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the golden moles of Southern Africa. We've talked about golden moles, didn't we? Somewhere. The we other shrews. Make a mole rat, but I don't think we did shrews or. No, but they're a separate order. Yeah, they're a total separate order. 
So, you know, okay. they're mammals, obviously. Now so. you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. They are, dude. The, the lesser hedgehog. hedgehog oh, you got to look You got to look up the lowland streak tinrec. Oh, they totally look like hedgehogs. He's got a crazy mohawk. Where the heck do these things fit in? Ah, uh, this will keep I, you up tonight, my friend. You're I know. <laughs> all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Move it on, move it on. Move back to the, to the European hedgehog or the other ones. So the family, interesting, hedgehogs and moon rats. Have you, I've never heard of a moon rat. Well, when I was Googling the biggest hedgehog, that's what <laughs> I, I had never heard of one either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's what popped up was a moon rat, and they're pretty big I mean, yeah the hairy hedgehogs they call them yeah yeah i mean they're definitely like you have to hold them in two hands yeah yeah, yeah. and they're darling so, so anyways this is a part of that family is about 25 species and then we go and we have our 17 species of, of hedgehog and you have like the four-toed hedgehog north african southern african somali and their own genre genus then the emir the southern white-breasted the European, it might be a mirror. A mirror. John always says mirror, but what is yeah. you know? Oh, anyways, a mirror, a mirror, a mirror. I'd like to learn because the Amir leopard. I saw one uh, in South Carolina, and I just know they're critically endangered. They're beautiful leopards. Then you have the long-eared hedgehog, Indian long-eared hedgehog, their own genus, and then you have the Darien Hughes small-toothed forest hedgehog, the Galagong forest hedgehog. And then the final genus is the desert, which is so darling, the brants, the Indian, and the bare-bellied. So those are all your species of hedgehog. Now, look at the European. It's Aranicidae, uh, Europeus, so the single species of hedgehog. Now, evolution, interesting, not a lot. I couldn't really find a lot. Just they're very unique. They're, they're not that closely related to porcupines or spiny anteaters. It's more of like convergent evolution. They, they develop their, their spines on their own. But they are related to shrews. And shrews are some of the earliest mammals, right? We know that. They, 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 they're ancient. So hedgehogs going back the tree with the shrews, they date back about 75 million years, some of the earliest ancestors. And then the hedgehog kind of family tree split off about 65 million years, probably that last mass extinction. That's when certain family lines started to really come out because the dinosaurs were gone. But the modern hedgehog we see today emerged nearly 15 million years ago. And wow, that's incredible have not changed much at all in that They time. don't need to. They've no. got it all figured out. Yeah. Yeah. So it's no wonder least concerned are adapting to a lot of the challenges that they're facing. Um, it's up there in the UK. But yeah, that was that was really, really interesting uh, to read how ancient they are. So they're, they're not like a newer mammal. They've just been around for a while. Now, before we get some facts, I think we should take a quick break. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off. An eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. 
We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. All right, welcome back. Now, just looking at some of the, the quick facts, Angie, the physiology, I know we can get into these quills here in a second. Lifespan in the wild, six to eight years, under human care, 10 to 12 years. So that's not too bad for a little bit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. We've had some that, that lived much shorter lives. Not the fastest little thing, though. <laughs> they got those little, those little legs. <laughs> those legs. I read this. It's hilarious. Up to four miles per hour or six kilometers per hour. So a brisk walk for us. But Chris, when they are out foraging for the evening, as hedgehogs are mostly nocturnal, they can travel up to two miles. So They're just because you don't walk fast doesn't mean that you can't put in your steps. Yeah, <laughs> true, 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 true. That's long for those little legs. I know. I know. I thought like when I saw them, I mean, I, I don't mess with wildlife. I just admire them from a distance. But when I saw that little one foraging. I was like, ooh, I don't want to scare it. I don't want to run off and I'll miss them. But then now I realized... <laughs> <laughs> I, it would take quite a while for them to run away from me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're not that fast. Uh, interesting, though, their vision isn't that great. They mm -hmm. really, they have really poor depth perception. Their binocular vision is very limited. They, they but say it makes they, sense if they're more of a nocturnal or twilight animal, right? right? Yeah, they see mm -hmm. shades of cream and brown, but mm -hmm. very good smell of very good. Oh, that that's cute little snout and that little nose, yeah. twitch, twitch, smelly, smelly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very well developed. And they, they can they can smell food in the, up to three inches deep. Was that wow. five, six centimeters? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, they, they, they can definitely uh, get their way around there looking for all their, their food. And the hearing of the hedgehog is pretty well developed as well. So they can utilize that smell and the hearing to find all the little creatures they need to eat. Now, thinking about why they're they're not the fastest animal on earth they're they've evolved to have these quills right so they're not going to run away from a predator instead they're just going to roll up into these balls right like these little balls where they they these spines push out now are they as sharp as porcupine quills ooh good question yeah. uh I think so. I mean, they're definitely sharp. I saw a photo of one zoomed in and it looked very sharp to me. Uh, but unlike the porcupine quills, the hedgehog spikes are not barbed and they're not poisonous. So they basically will raise and lower the spines depending on how threatening the situation is. 
And the insides of the hedgehog's quill or spine, uh, either term is accepted, are mostly hollow. However, there is a, like chambers of air uh, that make these uh, quills very light, but very strong. So the hedgehog isn't very heavy, even with mm. all of these, basically a, almost entire body covered of these uh, decent-sized quills. Yeah, so what they 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 roll up in these balls, right? So it, it it covers all the exposed area, and like you're saying, they 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 stick out by muscle, right? It's that erector pili. Yes, yeah. I'd love. Oh, yeah, yeah, the erector pili. That's my jam. I think it's a uh, it's a fun band ni- name as well. But <laughs> yes, Chris, I love dorking out about the erector pili muscle uh, because if you think of a hair follicle, or in this case, on a hedgehog, their quill. It is the follicle base goes into the dermis of the skin. So there's the epidermis and then the dermis, the deeper layer. And that's where the bulb and the hair grows or the the quill forms. And it's made of keratin, similar to our hair. So the spines of porcupines and hedgehogs are made of keratins, just really hardened, similar to our hair. But the muscle attached at the base of the hair follicle or the, the spine, and then it runs up towards the epidermis, right? Mm-hmm. And so what happens is when the uh, when the hedgehog is scared or wants to basically use its defense mechanism, this erector pili uh, becomes contracted because typically it's in a relaxed position. And it becomes contracted, which makes the spine stand upright more and be more mm-hmm. firm. And so each hair follicle or spine follicle, spine or quill follicle has an erector pili muscle. And in us humans, do you know what happens when our erector pili stand up? Yeah, no, isn't it when we get chills, right? Or we yeah, goosebumps. Uh, goosebumps, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the goose, so there's like, I just, just love physiology. I mean, it is. I it's always crazy. think of muscles as these, you know, your big biceps or quadriceps or something, but teeny tiny muscles in your hair follicle right it's crazy yeah make the hair stand up pretty yeah. cool or when you're scared yeah right you know, or when you're like, scared yeah. right yeah. Yeah. and so up. yeah from each spine uh there's follicle attaches to the skin and it has this little muscle and it's used for the technical term is pilo erection so erector pili and pilo erection those are the buzzwords of the day <laughs> Well, isn't it like, isn't cats like get that too with like their, uh, or dogs, you know, their their hair stands up to make them look bigger and meaner and Mm -hmm. like, yeah, it's all connected by that muscle. Well, what's interesting too about hedgehog, I read this, is as they roll, all of those spines erect simultaneously because they're covered with the same sheet of muscle uh, on its back called the paniculus carnosus. So when they roll in the ball, boing, all of those spines go out. So it makes them very hard for any type of predator to really get at them, right? Yeah. I mean, an adult hedgehog has around 5,000 to 7,000 spines covering its body. That's crazy. So yeah, I mean, that's for a small little creature. That's something you don't want to mess with. You don't want those spines uh, in your mouth. Now, no, no. the other misnomer, and we talked about this when we covered porcupine, porcupines don't throw their quills at mm-hmm. 
people. Uh, that's a myth. They will drop them sometimes or they will come away from their body mm-hmm. uh, when they're really scared and high cortisol, if I remember correctly from the physiology. Yeah. Is that right? I think so. I think so when you talked about it, yeah. Mm-hmm. But what does happen with hedgehogs is over time, sometimes the spines will detach from their body, probably similar to us shedding hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't happen, of course, as much as us shedding hair, but they do fall out and are replaced. And this process is called quilling. And if it if there is a lot of quilling going on with a hedgehog, it can mean that they're uh, under stress or diseased mm-hmm. or just not feeling well. So, but it's not something that they do when a predator's quote unquote after them. Now, can I ask you this? Can they roll in a ball like Sonic the Hedgehog? <laughs> Ooh, I don't think so. No. Uh, no. And I don't think they close. It's not like they close all the way up. In fact, uh, when we talked about the pink fairy armadillos, that's another species that can close itself up to use its shell to protect itself, but it doesn't go all the way into a like a perfect ball. The only species that can roll in a ball is a three-banded armadillo. And I used to work with them at the Lincoln Park Zoo because their populations are, uh, I think, near threatened. Mm-hmm, and they're mm-hmm. just darling. I used to work with one named Meatball, and she was just a perfect ambassador am- animal. Uh, but they actually, it's really cool. I mean, they're little, like, they have the um, armor shell on their head and then, of course, on their tail. And their head and tail fit together perfectly, like, in a V shape. It's just incredible. So they have no, you know, none of their legs or right, any nothing. skin showing at all. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. Uh, and the other armadillo species, like the, I think nine banded, 12 banded, all the different banded ones, they cannot uh, roll in a ball. Yeah. Yeah. Nor can hedgehogs. You no, know, hedgehogs can't like Sonic, but still, it's kind of cool to see Sonic roll around. It uh, is. In video games is. and movies and stuff. Yeah. Being a, being a hero out there. Now, before we get to the behaviors, because I, I do want to talk about the self-annoying behavior I found fascinating and why animals do it. Uh, again, nut- nutrition-wise, they are omnivores, but generally eat mostly insects, you know, uh, centipedes, worms, uh, snails, uh, fungus, fruit. Uh, Cockroaches, crickets. Yeah. So they eat a lot of insects, and that's why they're the gardener's friend, because they go in there and get rid of some of these pests. Now... They oh. can eat frogs, reptiles, birds, eggs, snakes, so and up to one third of their body weights in just one night. Now they're not the biggest animals on earth, but still, that's why they're kind of devastating here in New Zealand. But very important uh, where they are in their native habitats. Well, and I heard that the hedgehog got its name because of their foraging method. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, funny, yeah, that they basically like to root through and along hedges in uh, undergrowth to search for basically insects, worms, centipedes, whatever. And as the hedgehog is rooting around, it emits a grunt-like song, sound <laughs> so that's like a hog. Yeah, they're so cute. <laughs> yeah, they're I so love cute. that. Oh, you got to love these animals. All right. Switch it off to kind of go into behavior. Self-anointing, I thought was, wow. So I, I, I kind of went and read about it because I, I, I knew you'll talk about it. But so you talk about if they smell or taste something that's like really strong or they just, they don't like, so they'll go and just cover themselves with saliva. Is that right? Yes, Chris. It's such a cool and unique behavior. And so 
when the hedgehog comes across something noxious, let's say, they will basically chew and lick at the substance and then start to produce a frothy saliva that is a, basically a mix of their own natural saliva and then probably some of this noxious uh substance, whatever it might be. And then the hedgehog will spread this frothy saliva mix all over their body, onto their spines, onto their legs, uh, onto wherever they can reach for the most part. And it's just really crazy. I know. (laughs) So I did, I went down a little bit of the rabbit hole of this self-anointing behavior and how often it's seen and who else does it and stuff like that. And so, and in one study I found, Chris, uh, it reported that the hedgehogs will do this self-anointing behavior uh, over 10% of the time that they were observed. So like around 11% Mm. of the time. And yeah, it's a lot, right? I mean, and so, and of course, it depends on the individual and basically that uh, young will self-anoint more than adults and males will maybe do it more than females and that um, adults were observed self-anointing more so in the peak of summer. Uh, so yeah, it can be dependent basically on age, gender, and uh, season. So then that led me to the next question. Well, why? Like, why do this behavior? I mean. A lot of animals groom themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you think of your cat at home and, and uh, of course, a lot of primate species and dogs. Anyways, but researchers don't know for sure. But there's been some theories that have been thrown out for why the hedgehogs self-anoint. And some think that it's uh, a form of sexual behavior. Some say that it might be because this, the scent is so strong and fragrant uh, that they just have an instinct to cover themselves with it. And then maybe because it's, maybe because it's like new to them. Uh, but I mean, nothing, you know, not obviously nothing set in stone. And, uh, yeah. So, so really it's the behavior, the why, the why of the behavior is unknown. Now, hedgehogs are not the only species that self-anoint. It is a little bit unique and fascinating that they choose to do it on uh, like stinky stuff or strong stuff. Uh, in fact, studies have seen uh, studies have shown that they'll do it with when they're exposed to fecal matter, soap, tobacco, uh, toad skin. In fact, there's reports of hedgehogs sometimes killing toads, uh, then biting into the toads glands that make their toxins, their poisons, and smearing this toxic frothy mixture all over their spines. Hmm. Pretty weird, right? Uh, I, it's a, it is a fascinating behavior. That's why I was like, you know, we got to talk about it. We have to bring it up. Yeah, but they're not alone. Um, I mean, like I said, I think they're alone with maybe like some of this poison and stuff, but mm-hmm, several mm-hmm. primate species self-anoint with several different items from fruit, leaves, uh, and millipedes. In fact, the wedge cap. Ca- yeah, the wedge cap capuchin, which we haven't done capuchins yeah. yet. We have to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they self-anoint with millipedes. <laughs> That's hilarious. Mexican spider monkeys self-anoint with um, three different species of plants: the leaves yeah. from the plants, the trumpet tree, the wild cherry, the wild celery, and the almos petri. So basically, it's like a little perfume for them. Mm-hmm. And millipede. I'm so over millipedes. That's hilarious. And if we think of our ungulates, which we mm-hmm. love so much, um, 
Do you remember covering a creature that would dig a big pit, deposit urine, their own urine, and then roll in it? Well, dogs do that all the time, but let's see. This is an, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know if they deposit their own urine. They like to roll in other fecal matter. All right. Moose? No. Yes. Moose did. I don't remember that. I don't remember. Well, no, that. I, yeah. I don't. I I had to kind of go back in the notes too because we covered the moose in mm-hmm. episode 139. Okay. So that was called a massive moose podcast. You've got to listen to that podcast. Moose are fascinating. I just remember they don't sweat. And that's why climate change is like such. I'm so worried about moose. Every time there's a heat wave in North America, I'm like, oh my God. Or, you know, in Northern Europe too, where they're at, Northern Europe and, and Asia. But, yeah. Wow, I forgot that. Okay. Yeah, they dig this like they dig yeah. this rutting pit where yeah. they um where they then urinate into it mm-hmm. and they'll kind of sometimes they'll splash it around, put some over their antlers and and mm-hmm. they'll even roll in it and wallow in it. And then they become this odor that covers their body or their antlers becomes very attractive to uh the female moose cows. And in fact, if she really finds a male's wallow that she likes like she will push the bull out of the wallow so she can wallow in it <laughs> <laughs> oh god okay things not to do yes. in yes okay and then i and then when when talking about insects and the capuchins with the millipedes i i was racking my brain and do mm-hmm. you remember covering a species okay. that does the anting behavior where the bird will put itself over an, an anthill and allow the ants to basically crawl all over its feathers and just like hang out on it and and or sometimes pick up the ants and smear it on its feathers. Oh Do you remember gosh. that one? Oh, we have not covered that many birds. It, it, it's a recent it, one. Is it? The, not mm-hmm. the pelican? No, no. It's a really smart one. Oh, the crows? Yes. Yes. The crafty crows. Okay. They mm -hmm, they do this anting behavior. And in fact, they're not alone. There's several species of birds that do the Mm -hmm. anting behavior. Uh, A lot we haven't covered, but um, the American robin, the song sparrow, the northern cardinal, the house sparrow, uh, the red-winged blackbird, wild turkeys. We actually did cover that. um, Northern flicker. So anyways, it's, it's, uh, I don't know if it's common in birds but it's not it's not um it's not unheard of right and right. once again the uh, theory of why uh birds are allowing ants to crawl on their body or smashing ants <laughs> onto yeah. their body onto their feathers they don't know um some experts think that um anting might control parasites mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. or perhaps basically uh there's a top um some chemicals inside the ants body if they're smashed on there might help act as an insecticide but they don't know but if you want to learn more about crows episode 269 is a cult favorite uh, i love that episode it's a good one crafty yeah, crows yeah. definitely a good one definitely a good one now real quick before we get to more behavior after we went down that rabbit hole but it's fascinating stuff like really fascinating uh just in their native habitat like especially for the Euro- european hedgehog badgers Foxes, owls, dogs, snakes. You probably think of some of the other predators that that might get at them, you know. But again, that they have that ball rolling behavior to, to protect themselves. What other behaviors do they do that, that we haven't covered yet? 
Well, on the off chance that um, they do come across a snake, hedgehogs, interestingly enough, have some natural immunity to different snake venoms. So I thought that was super fascinating. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. fascinating. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. Uh, But once again, uh, that probably isn't going to happen too much because they're able to protect themselves with their spines. But uh, as far as other behaviors go, uh, hedgehogs, as I mentioned, are nocturnal for the most part. They're solitary. They do have big home ranges, uh, and but they don't they don't typically fight a lot or defend any territories or anything like that. They kind of just roam around. And during the day, they like to rest in shallow nests. Uh, they'll make the nest out of anything from grass to leaves, twigs, any basically any foliage that they can find. Um, and they'll sometimes use each other's nests, but like never at the same time. They are good swimmers. You wouldn't think of that, right, with a hedgehog, but they're no, good no, sw- not at all. Yeah, and they can flatten their spines down and squeeze through tight spaces. And the European hedgehog does hibernate, so it makes them one of only three mammals in Great Britain that hibernate. The other two being uh, bats and dormice. Mm-hmm. So it's so depending on where the eastern hedgehog uh, lives. Uh, the hibernation will usually begin in October and last until April. When it's if it's a warmer area, they won't hibernate that long, and if it's colder, they may hibernate longer, because the duration of the hibernation will depend on the latitude and longitude of where the Eastern European hedgehog is living. Now, Chris, we've talked about hibernation several times on this mm-hmm, podcast. Mm-hmm. However, I feel like it's been a little bit of a while for me because. I went down a huge hibernation rabbit hole. <laughs> rabbit this week. hole. It's been a while. And I promise I'll just I'll I'll keep it quick uh because after I started thinking and really ruminating on hibernation and the physiology of it in general because it's pretty radical, right? And when the hedgehog does hibernate, uh it'll do this basically underground. They'll build like a burrow or a half burrow and just bury themselves under the ground. And hibernation is radical, right? The physiology of it is just mind-blowing, and I'll talk more about that in a second. But in general, during hibernation, uh, a creature, including the hedgehog, they are going to slow their heartbeat. Um, In the hedgehog's example, from 128 to 210 beats normally to 2 to 12 beats per minute. That's crazy. Okay. That's crazy. That's really slow. Because small mammals always have a you know, heart. Yeah. You know, always, very fast yeah, heartbeat, fast. right? Yeah, always fast. Yeah. Two to 12 beats per minute. That's okay. nuts. Yeah, that's nuts. Their respiratory slows from 50 uh, breaths per minute to four to five. And then there's just this incredible reduction of biochemi- biochemical processes in the body. And the one I thought that you would find super fascinating is during hibernation, uh, hedgehog stops spermatogenesis. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's no I mean, repro- it's just like everything shuts down. It's just yes, like barely alive. Yeah. Right. And and keep in mind that not all hedgehogs hibernate, um, but most of the European hedgehogs do. And a lot of whether or not they're going to hibernate depends on basically where they, they where they live. Uh, because hibernation is nature's evolutionary solution to cold weather, 
right? So it gets really cold out and resource, and there's no food or not a lot of food. And so there's two solutions. You can migrate or you can hibernate. Yep. And yep. that's a lot of birds, of course, migrate and, and, and species with much bigger legs. I'm saying that hedgehog <laughs> is not migrating very far. Yeah, no. <laughs> no. I mean, I know no. they can travel far, but or you said like in a night, but yeah, those but little no. legs are not taking them very, mm-hmm. very and, far. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, so that that's that's the evolutionary solution. And it's mm. a really radical, incredible one. And I learned so much about hibernation uh, this actually uh, – earlier today because I had done all my notes and I just, this hibernation stuff has just been, I don't know, blowing me away all week long. And so the dork inside me took my Saturday afternoon. I don't even know how, oh, the baby was napping and the Mm -hmm. boys were doing Pokemon cards with their friends. And I I don't even know, John was, ah, John was at the grocery store uh, being the, the wonderful husband that he is. And so I just totally dorked out, Chris, and I read a 24 page paper. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, yeah, like, I know us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's called the Cellular, Molecular, and Physiologic Adaptations of Hibernation and the Solutions to Environmental Changes. And it's in the annual reviews uh, recently in 2020. And it it was a physiological dream come true for me. They explain so much. Well, they explained what they know about as far as uh, what, which animals hibernate and why they do it. But then the physiological part of obligate hibernators, which I think the European hedgehog falls into because mm-hmm. they definitely do uh, hibernate. And uh, all about, is it sleep or is it hibernation? They don't believe it is a, a form of sleep uh, from all studying all these different brain waves and stuff and um, and different species of squirrels. Um, but then they also really break apart um, how an animal that hibernates doesn't eat. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these obli- obligatory hibernators don't eat for five to seven months. Yeah, I know. I know. It's crazy. And yeah. then they, and they don't drink water. I so know. there's a whole, there's a whole, uh, you know, four to five, pa- not pages, but paragraphs on how they survive without water and how their metabolism is able to completely not stop, of course, obviously, but slow. It's just, I mean, it was just an incredible read. And I, I, I told John later on, I'm like, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I just, it's like my brain needed to read all about the hormones leptin and glucocorticoids yeah. and and the suprachiasmatic nucleus which is part of the brain and just all of these other physiological nerdy terms uh yep, <laughs> i yep. just it's like i think i've been watching just too much uh netflix that are just like cheesy comedies or romance like no yeah i don't know i my brain needed to dork out with big hard science words today and I and I got like a physiological like runner's high because I don't mm-hmm, get mm-hmm. runner's high. In fact, I just get basically plantar fasciitis and other things from running. But reading this article was just it just really fulfilled um, a niche for me today. It made me very very happy. And a lot of the cliff notes are is we still don't know. There's still tons mm-hmm. of things we don't know. It's very hard to study an animal when they're hibernating, right? Um, 
in general, they know that certain hormones do certain certain things and certain receptors, um, certain receptors upregulate and some downregulate. And uh, as far as not being able to drink water, I uh, that one is just still really blowing my mind. A lot of it has to do with they change, they lower the uh, the osmolarity uh, of their blood plasma. Um, and of course they, um, regulate their kidney function a lot much more. So they don't let hardly any water out. And Chris, what the European hedgehog taught me about hibernation is that these obligatory hibernators, while they're hibernating, they have these periodic breaks or, um, interbout arousals. So like an arousal period where why they're hibernating and remember their, uh, their body temp. Oh, I didn't even mention their body temperature. Uh, their obviously their breaths go down, their heartbeats go down, and their body temperatures decrease. For example, with the uh, European hedgehog, they go from a uh, two to five de- degrees Celsius, uh, the cool down, or forty six to thirty six to forty one degrees Fahrenheit during hibernation, and then they'll go to their normal temperature, which is 30 to 35 degrees Celsius or 86 to 95 degrees Fahrenheit. So they'll have this little arousal period uh, where their heart beats faster, they breathe faster, and they, of course, their body temperature rises. And the periodic breaks or their arousals in the European hedgehog occur every one to two weeks and last for one to two days. And it depends on the species, but they might go forage for food. They might urinate. They typically don't drink water. Uh, and in a lot of species, and in some of the studies from the uh, the European hedgehog in the UK, because uh, researchers are trying to figure out um, why some populations of European hedgehogs in Britain do well and some don't, and they thought it had to do with the hibernation and um, whether or not uh, they had these... Uh, these arousals, and if so, what they were doing during their arousals. And a lot of times, yeah, they don't drink water and they don't eat. And a lot of times they just actually just move their arms and legs a little bit. Like they don't actually get up and like walk around. So it's this really unknown reason of why they do this because energetically it is kind of exhausting and uh, biochemically and the physiology physiology of it's just radical. Um, uh, if you're into if you're, I guess, a physiology nerd, <laughs> like my yeah, 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 yeah. So they don't really know. I mean, and, and yeah, I mean, they don't really know evolutionary speaking, like why, like why don't they just stay high? But they think it's like why they just don't stay cold and with a slow heartbeat. But they think that it is very important for their survival to once in a while warm the body back up and probably get some of these uh, these biochemical processes moving along. But then they shut back down again. Yeah. Yeah. Like after 24 hours. So it's what's incredible. And yeah, what's going on? Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, we'll, we'll put that, we'll put the link to that paper on our show notes for anybody who has a whole Saturday afternoon to. <laughs> yeah. I, you know what I was thinking about it while you were talking was. See, see space, I knew you'd like this. Well, no, no. Space travel, right? Like, I, you know me and, and we're about to, to the, the U.S. is about to launch uh, a rocket to go around the moon again. And they want to have uh, people on the moon going to Mars. So long term, you know, when when eventually we we start discovering the cosmos, something like hibernation 
you know, you see it in movies, hibernating people and pods and stuff. Will that be possible once we figure out all of these tricks that how these animals do it? Yeah, I mean, and I, like I said, I, the paper probably for most people will be boring. I, I just sent it to you, Chris. So tonight, if you can't yeah. sleep or this next week, you'll have to look over <laughs> it. Will, and uh, it's just it's just really, really, really cool. And and as you mentioned, uh, figuring out these biochemical processes and the why and the mm-hmm. how of it all could be really helpful uh, someday. Or it just goes to show that hedgehogs and other species that hibernate have these superhuman powers that are just, you know, us humans don't have. And it's incredible. And then I think just the last thing to think about is during this hibernation, the European hedgehog will lose almost 40% of its weight, right? Because they they Mm -hmm. fattened up and then they lose this weight. And it's just, so the controls for, I'm of course really into metabolic, like um, white adipose tissue and the gains and losses of that is something I, I really, I studied a lot uh, during grad school and it's just really, really fascinating. So yeah, 40% of its weight in you know, five months, uh, maybe yeah. there's some pathways there that could help humans out. I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's see. Let's see. But anyways, thank you for uh, letting me <laughs> yeah, dork, dork out, out about hibernation and <laughs> get my, get my physiological like uh, endorphins. going well before we get to repro i think we should take a quick break all right we're back so angie reproduction what is going on with hedgehogs you you said they're they're primarily and they're not very social but obviously they gotta get together right and when they do get together um hedgehogs they're not a particularly noisy animal um like i mentioned earlier they will grunt sometimes or snort when they're rooting around for their insects uh, but they do become more vocal uh, when mating. So uh, the sounds they may make might be anywhere from squeaking to larger, longer grunts and squeals, uh, depending on the species. The European hedgehog's breeding season will be anywhere from April to September, once again, depending on where it lives, uh, after the animal emerges from hibernation. So once again, that's a little crazy to me, right? Like you're a male Body's hedgehog that's, yeah. right, that's hibernating. You lost 40% of your, your body weight and your spermatogenesis stopped. I mean, and now you emerge and basically it's go time for the most, yep. for the most part. Uh, and males typically do emerge from hibernation a few weeks to a month before females. And that might have something to do with helping them either bulk up or getting that spermatogenesis back going uh so but uh the thought is that males emerge before females because it will give them an advantage during mating season to to make territory and get healthy and ready to go and now chris when a male and female hedgehog find each other during breeding season their courtship behavior is super cute um The male will circle around her while she'll become a little bit more submissive and lower her nose. Uh, Depending on if she likes him or not, she might make a lot of noise uh, and or become a little defensive. But the male will take his time. Uh, He definitely is tenacious. He'll circle around her for several hours and he he may make several attempts to mount. And depending on how much she rejects him, he may or may not leave. 
Yeah. <laughs> so, like- if she finally accepts him, she'll lower her spines and, and also her body to the ground mm-hmm. to basically um, help the poor male out, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so, and it, obviously, if she stays a little bit aggressive and making noises, um, after a couple hours, he'll give up and try to find another female. In afterbreeding, uh, the male European hedgehog provides no parental care. Uh, he basically breeds and then books on out. Uh, looking for another female <laughs> to breed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, yes, he's 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 he has one job in mind during that breeding season. And now the female, once she has been bred, the gestation period uh, for the European hedgehog is going to be about thirty-five days. So it's pretty short, and her, her litter will range anywhere from one to nine little hedgehogs. But on average, it's usually about two, and depending on when they start their uh, breeding season, uh, European hedgehogs can sometimes have two litters per season. Now, studies have shown that if they do have a second litter uh, later in the summer or later that season, it's not, the, um, the survival rate is not as high as mm-hmm. that, the first litter. But I think we have to really think about and visualize a baby hedgehog. I know. I'm trying to sit, think, oh, they got to be so cute. Well, they're definitely cute, but I, being a woman, Chris, was thinking more about the birth of oh. a oh, yeah, 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 yeah. hedgehog okay. baby. Well, mm-hmm. okay. We've covered them before, right? Well, porcupine. Mm-hmm. So the quills are generally soft at birth, so they don't puncture anything. And then they harden within a few days. Is that the same? It's similar. Uh, so with the newborns, they're teeny tiny. They weigh anywhere from 0.3 to point nine ounces at birth. And when you actually look at them, they don't appear to have any spines because the spines are cover, uh, covered over a layer of fluid-filled skin. Okay. okay. And this basically, this fluid acts as a, a cushion um, to help the poor female uh, hedgehog's vagina during birth, I would imagine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And now 24 hours after birth, this fluid reduces, it's absorbed back into the body, and the spines of the hedgehog are revealed. And then around two to three days after birth, um, they have the erector pili muscle developed and working, and they can actually make their spines erect And when they're about two or three days old. Well, they're called hoglets, right? So I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. So cute. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, well, and also too, when they're born, uh, the, the spines are white. Uh, mm-hmm. but then they basically start being replaced by darker spines right away. And the European hedgehog will typically wean at about six weeks after birth. Uh, at that time, they'll start leaving the nest and hanging out with their mom and begin to like forage and learn how to forage and start, you know, starting to be able to hang out on their own. And around one year is when the European hedgehog is considered a full grown adult and ready to mate. Well, and they live, you know, six to eight years. So that, I mean, it makes sense if they're having a couple litters a year too. So, you know, they're they're able to sustain their numbers. And like we said, least concern over all the species, it's just the European ones in, in the UK that are now on the red list of protected species in the U- UK because they are vulnerable to extinction. They've had a population decrease. I've seen upwards of 80%, but at least 50% in the last 20 years. So they've taken a hit being there in the UK. I mean, there's a lot of green space, but 
thinking about where hedgehogs live, I could see where, you know, they, they could have some trouble plus the, a lot of roads and urban development and, uh, you know, so there is a lot of pressure on them. So it makes sense, but there are organizations out there, out there to help them, right? Yes, Chris, I was so excited to find the British Hedgehog Preservation Society. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned it earlier in the podcast, but uh, the British Hedgehog Preservation Society can be found at BritishHedgehogs.org.uk. And we'll put their website on our show notes. And they can also be found on Facebook too, if you just search British Hedgehog Preservation Society. And they have a great following on Facebook. So I highly recommend you join uh, join it so you can be kept abreast of all things going on in the UK with um, hedgehog conservation. But the British Hedgehog Preservation Society was founded in 1982, so a while ago, um, and it's dedicated to helping and protecting hedgehogs native to the UK. Uh, they utilize campaigns that include uh, advocacy, educational projects, and they basically raise awareness about steps that can be taken to stop the decline of hedgehogs in the wild and also improve their welfare and uh, keep them safe uh, in the future in the UK. And lastly, the British Hedgehog Preservation Society also funds research to try to figure out uh, good conservation and welfare techniques for he- uh, hedgehogs in the UK. So check them out at BritishHedgehogs.org.uk uh, and give them a like and a follow and uh, you, you will be very glad that you did. Absolutely. They, they are, they are adorable. And, uh, you know, some things you can do for if you live in the world with hedgehogs and, and I, I found some conservation tips on how to make your garden more hedgehog friendly. This is from Hugh Warwick, uh, probably out of the UK. And he said, do these things to help them. So, and this will help other native species like creating a wild corner in your garden so where, you know, native species can be and native insects, all of those things. Uh, plant a tree. We all should plant trees. We, we love trees. Uh, turn your vegetable beds into havens for hedgehogs. Uh, avoid using chemicals. I know trying to uh, deal with pests and that's where pesticides are coming in and really devastating to insect populations. So using natural uh, means would probably be best. Avoid spraying and, and using those things. You can provide nesting areas for them or make a compost heap. Uh, break down barriers in your yard so native wildlife can get access to your yard. Uh, and then just you can always offer some extra food or water outside. Probably water um for these little guys and gals zipping around there at four miles per hour, six kilometers per hour, but they just a lot of fun, you know, a fun species to learn about and share this knowledge with everybody. I just want to say thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting uh, the all creatures podcast. Don't forget. You can follow us on Instagram. You can uh, follow, find us on Facebook. We have a Facebook group that Angie's very active in. That, that community is really growing. Uh, so thank you. And you can also check out our Patreon uh, if you want to talk to Angie and I live once a month. And you're supporting conservation uh, just by listening through once we get ads running and then also through our Patreon program. So thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Listen. Learn. Share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com